The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter number one, we'll come to that in just a bit as we review also. But then when we got into chapter number two, and now into chapter number three, also we are seeing uh, some letters, seven letters to be exact, to seven individual churches in Asia Minor, which would be modern day Turkey today. And so we're just going to dive right back into our analysis of these seven letters in these two chapters, chapters two and chapter three of the book of Revelation. And uh, we're going to read in chapter three, beginning in verse number seven and down through verse number 13. So Revelation 3, verse 7, down through verse number 13. And, the, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know, uh, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the, all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, uh, behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou, uh, which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven uh, from my God, and I will write upon him my new name." He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Our Father, we do thank you this evening again for this opportunity to gather together. I ask that you speak through me as I give your word tonight, Lord, that you'd help us to, uh, to learn from it, that your Spirit would guide us to all truth through it, and uh, that we might know more about you and draw closer to you because of it. Lord, we want to honor and praise and glorify you in everything that is said and done here tonight. We want your will to be accomplished, and uh, as we study this church here, this church of Philadelphia, help the, uh, the encouragements that are found from it uh, to encourage us that we might be able to worship you and to serve you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we've been going through these, uh, these letters, chapter 2 and chapter number 3, we've come now to the sixth of the, uh, of the letters, uh, sixth of the churches, the Church of Philadelphia. And uh, we have been studying each and every one of these in the same exact, exact manner and uh, a specific way of interpreting it. Uh, and of course, we are looking at it in three different senses. We said those senses are not uh, contradictory to each other, but they're actually complementary to each other. And uh, they all work together to help us get the full understanding and the full grasp and concept of what the Lord would have us to understand from these letters in chapter 2 and chapter number 3. And so I want to review those again as we've done each week. And the first uh, way that we are going to, of course, interpret these letters is uh, just through the plain sense of Scripture. And that is speaking of a historical, a specific sense uh, that this is a, uh, this church of Philadelphia, it was a literal church in, uh, in, in the day that John was writing this, somewhere probably around 95 AD or so. And, uh, and the things that the Lord is speaking about to this church that we've just read out of verses 7 through 13 
are things that they were specifically experiencing. And uh, so we're going to look at what this, uh, who this church was, where it was at, and all those types of things as well. And we're going to interpret uh, the, the meaning of this letter, uh, first and foremost, from the plain sense of Scripture, a historical specific context. Then we're going to go look at it in a perpetual sense, in the fact that there's a general or timeless uh, aspect to this as well. The things that the church was experiencing then in 95 AD, in many cases, are things that the churches in 2021 uh, are experiencing today also. The encouragement that God had for the church in 95 AD uh, is encouragement that He has for the church today in 2021. And, uh, and so we're going to look at that and see how that applies to us today. And then there's the prophetic sense of Scripture as well. And uh, when it comes to eschatology and the, the symbolic references that are found in it, how, it, uh, it, uh, how we say, we're saying that it, it kind of outlines uh, the timeline of what we know as the church age and how this church fits into that spectrum and where it fits onto our, uh, our timeline of events as we've known it thus far as well. And, uh, and so we've looked at it in those ways. I want to remind you, though, that the reason why we can look at the, in these ways is because of how God told John to outline the book. And so give me the next slide there, Brother Matt, if you would, please. And uh, he's, here's the outline found chapter 1, verse number 19. Uh, he said, it's a three-point outline. You're going to write the things that you saw, you're going to write the things that are, and you're going to write the things that are hereafter, that will come after these things. And, uh, and so we, we spent time several weeks ago dissecting that outline and finding what chapters of this book of Revelation fit into that outline. And you see it on the screen there. Of course, chapter number one uh, are, is what makes up those things that he saw. As John was on the Isle of Patmos and he heard the, the sound of the trumpets behind him, as the, the voice of a trumpet, he turns and he sees the seven golden candlesticks in the midst of it, Jesus Christ. And he speaks to him, of course, and, and he gives him all these things. All the events that took place in chapter number one represent the things that he saw. Then in chapter two and chapter three, this is what we're talking about right now. These seven letters, they make up the things that are. Now, if we're not careful, that makes us confused real quick because the things that are present tense and the things that are in chapter 2 and chapter 3 took place in 95 AD, 2000, over 2,000 years ago. And so it's not, not, it's not our anymore. It was for us. But the fact that he said these things are going to take place over the span of the church's existence here on this earth tells us that we're still experiencing those things. As long as the church is here to be able to read about it, we're in the times that are. And uh, that, sp that spans chapter 2 and chapter 3. Then, of course, we come to chapter 4, and the, that begins, and all the way through the rest of the book, the things that are after these things. Look at, ver, since it's probably right there uh, on your page, or maybe just a page over, but chapter 4, verse number 1. After this, I looked. What, what is this that he's supposed to have in the last point of this outline? The things that are after the things after these things, and here he says, after this. And so it, it gives us that indication as well, and we discussed that already. I won't belabor that point. If you have any questions, you can see me afterwards. You can go back and listen to previous weeks on Facebook, YouTube, podcasts, either way, and uh, keep a track with those things as well. 
But of course, not only do we see how the the letters are laid out and the outline that was given kind of give us indication that, you know what, this has given us some prophetic sense in the fact that it tells us about the church age and different times that the church would be around and and, uh, the things that they would experience. But also we, we took note of the unique order in which these letters were given. The first church that was given their letter was the church of Ephesus, right? The last one, which was gonna, we'll see next week, is the church of Laodicea. And then if you look at a map and see where, where John was on the Isle of Patmos, and then how the order that they go in, and if you give me that slide there, the clock one there, Brother Matt, it, 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 it kind of looks as, as it, got been, it was given, as it was gone around, it, it goes in a clockwise manner, if you may. And so we said that kind of gives us possibly some information into the fact that this is telling us about a timeline, about an age that the church as a whole is going to experience from the time of, of its beginning until the time where it's raptured out. And so give, a, give, give me the whole the layout there, Brother Matt, and uh, that's, that gives us the church ages there uh, from Ephesus all the way through Laodicea. And thus far, we've gone through Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira and Sardis, and that's where we stopped, of course, last week. And so now we're here in chapter uh, number three, beginning in verse number seven, with this church of Philadelphia. And uh, as we've always, our first point is going to look at how Christ is characterized. And so let's look at it. Point number one tonight, verse number seven, that Christ is characterized by His awesome power Read with me verse number seven again. It says, And the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. And so we'll look at this, how it's described and how it relates to chapter number one, again, as we've already discussed. But before we dive into that, uh, let's consider uh, this church first and foremost, this church of Philadelphia. And each week, as we've considered the churches, we've considered their names, we've considered what their names mean, and you probably already know what Philadelphia means, and if you do, everybody knows it, say it out loud. It means what? Brotherly love. You knew it. And, uh, and so that, this church, uh, the church of Philadelphia, or the city of Philadelphia, uh, meaning brotherly love, it was founded by the king of Pergamos in that day, and uh, it, was fa- uh, it was named after Attalus II, whose full name was Attalus II Philadelphius of Pergamos. And uh, Attalus II uh, was given the title of Philadelphius because of his great love that he had for his brother. His, the love that he had for the brother that ruled before him in this city as well. And, uh, and so because he revered him so highly and he loved him so dearly, uh, he was given it that nickname or that title. And so therefore, this city was named after him. Uh, so today, Philadelphia in modern-day Turkey is known as the city of Al-Shir. Uh, it was, at the time of John's writing, it was um, a, a small city. It wasn't a large one by any means. But even though it was small, it was prosperous, uh, and it was a center, if you may, for the early church. The main disadvantage to living in the city of Philadelphia, though, was the fact that it was prone to uh, intense earthquakes. Now, the area of Turkey is, I mean, it's known for experiencing earthquakes even today, but in that time, for whatever reason, Philadelphia had frequent intense earthquakes. 
Of course, if you've ever been in an area that has earthquakes and ever been uh, physically in a place where one took place, you know that it could be quite traumatic, quite scary, and it can be quite damaging as well. Well, in 17 AD, a strong earthquake rocked the city, and because of the great damage that that, that came from this earthquake, many of those that lived in Philadelphia were too afraid to move back into the city limits. They were afraid that if they went back and they rebuild, rebuilt, if they were to try to build up their life again there, uh, that it would just be another earthquake and that one might take their life. And so because of that, they were afraid to move back into the city, which caused the city to be low in number, as we said it would be in 95 AD when John was writing. And, uh, but many of the citizens decided to remain outside the cities, uh, in, in the countrysides, and, uh, and uh, although... Although it experienced some setbacks because of that, those that stayed in the city, it created a culture within it uh, that was one of persistence and determination. I think that's important to note because when we consider this church and consider the things that Jesus says about this church, we're going to see that it, that ties into why they did what they did and the uh, commendations that he gives them, of course. Um, Looking at the letter, though, Jesus describes himself, it says, as the one who is holy, the one who is true. And so we see God, we see Christ in verse number seven, described and characterized as the holy, true, and sovereign one. He's the holy, true, and sovereign one. See, we understand this this evening that Jesus sanctifies his church, and he is the embodiment of the message. He's the one with the key of David, as it says here in verse number seven. And these references that is being spoken of, as it says that he's the one who is holy, the one that is true, the one that hath the key of David, the one that openeth and no man can shutteth, and the one that shutteth where no man can open. These references remind us, it reminds the church of the centrality of Jesus to the mission and the message of the church. Without Jesus, the church is powerless. Without Jesus, we have no message. We've been discussing on Sunday mornings the power of the gospel, not only for the fact that it saves, but it impacts the believer's life every day of our life as we live in the gospel, a gospel-centered life, no doubt. But we understand that without Jesus, who is the one in which the message pertains to, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his willingness to die for us, and his ability, the power to be able to die for us and to forgive our sins, without him, our message is worthless. Without him, our mission is already lost. And so we understand as he he defines himself, as he characterizes himself in verse number seven, it gives us and it reminds us that the centrality of Jesus, uh, of what he is to our message and to our mission. And when we carry Jesus before us in our work, he goes, it also tells us that he can open any door. he's, He's the one, he is the one that, opens doors, and no man can close the door that he opens. He's the one that might close the door, and no man can open that door that he closes. So as we carry him before us, as we, as we carry his message, as we go on his mission, and we go in his name, his awesome power is what opens the doors for us to accomplish anything. His awesome power is what closes doors to keep us safe and secure as well. Uh, he mentions that here in verse number seven that he's the one that hath the key of David. Well, the key of David uh, refers to David's role 
uh, of working in the gate of the temple court during the kingdom period. The book of Ezekiel says that in the kingdom, David will preside over the court of the temple and that he has the key to the temple. And that day, the temple court will be open to believers from the first day that it's open and will remain throughout the rest of the kingdom. So to say that Jesus has the key of David is to say that, uh, is to say that Jesus has authority to grant access to the mercy seat in the temple. Of course, we understand that the mercy seat was in the Holy of Holies and the, uh, it was within the temple. And that was a place where forgiveness was found. And so it was a place where the atoning blood of Jesus would be applied for a covering for our sins. So when we see him say he's the one that hath the key of David, it becomes a picture of salvation itself. And it declares that he is the one that has the means, the only one who has the means to offer forgiveness and to grant salvation. And when Jesus opens that door, nothing can shut it. And when he shuts it, then it remains closed. That again proves and shows to us that we don't come to God on our own. We don't come to God on our own standing. We don't come to Him in our own way. I mean, there's so many people in this world today that says, well, all religions in essence are all the same anyways. It's like a mountain and you're going up one side, I'm going up the other. Your way might be Jesus, my way might be Allah, but it all reaches the same pinnacle. And as long as we're sincere in our beliefs, we're all going to reach the same point. But my friends, the Bible is clear that Jesus alone has the power. Jesus alone holds the key to offer salvation and to offer forgiveness. And uh, apart from Him, we, can't ha we don't have access to it. He's the one who opens. He's the one who closes. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We see, number one, that Christ is characterized by His awesome power. But secondly, tonight, notice that Christ commends this church. He commends this church because they were faithful to the gospel. Notice verses 8 and 9 with me. He says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which they say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee as with everything else in these letters, as we've already discussed, Jesus is showing himself to be in complete control. As we've looked at every letter thus far, as it, as it gave us a characteristic and characterized Jesus in these specific ways in those first verses, those first words of the introduction to these letters, and how they all have a unique correlation to the way Jesus was described and, and introduced in chapter number one as well, we've been able to come to the conclusion in every single one of them that it points back to the fact that God is in control, that He is all-powerful, He's the Lord of lords, and He's the King of kings. See, Jesus is in complete control, and he, he is in control of where the message goes, he's in control of when the message goes, and he is in control of when the message will stop as well. When he returns, the church is gone. And then, and, and then the way that his message is going to be produced is going to be done by the way he says to do it then as well. We, we, we've got to come to that realization. And, and, and to say that a door has been opened for a church is a tremendous encouragement to any church. 
especially if it's a church that has a heart to reach the lost, because when you say that the, a door has been opened, that means that God is pouring out his blessings. That means God is giving the okay. He's giving a stamp of approval, if you want, if for a lack of a better term. But he's saying, hey, this, I'm using this church right now to accomplish my work. That's a great encouragement for any church that has a desire and a heart to reach the lost. Knowing that Jesus is in the the business of saving souls. In fact, the the Bible tells us in 1 Peter that he is willing that none should perish, but that all all should come to repentance. And the, the fact that we know that he's in the business of saving souls, that he's the one that does the saving and not us, means that we can go out boldly without any concern over our success or the failures that we might see. See, he said, I'm the one that opens the doors and no man can shut it. That means if God is choosing to work through a specific uh, means or a specific avenue, we might as well just get along for the ride because it's going to happen. But he also says, I'm the one that closes and no man can open. As much as open doors are encouragement, closed doors should be an encouragement as well. Because just because we don't see what we consider to be great blessings unfolding, doesn't mean that we're in sin. It doesn't mean that we're out of God's will. Let me ask you this question. We we support missionaries uh, right now that while they were on the field for seven years or something like that, they had a handful of people come to know Christ as their Savior. Some people would look at that missionary and say they are a failure, that God's blessings isn't on them. But my friends, Jesus said he's the one who opens doors. doesn't matter what we do. He, we, we can't open them. If, if he opens them, it's going to stay open, and we can't close them. We can't do anything about it. But sometimes he closes doors as well. And when he does, we can't do anything about it. We can't become more holy so that you choose to use us in that area or that specific time frame. It does, just doesn't work that way. It's by his sovereign power, his sovereign will that that is accomplished. So let me say this tonight, that God commends this church because they were faithful to the gospel. And knowing that he's the one who opens the blessings, sometimes he closes them. It's like that faucet, right? You turn the, 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 hand, the, the handle and water comes flowing out. Sometimes when you don't need the water, though, you shut it off. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that's how Jesus decides to work. Can I say then to the the church tonight this way? Just as this church knew that, we need to know this tonight as well, that we should, because of that, that knowledge, knowing that Jesus opens and sometimes he closes, we should just be persistent in the work of the gospel. I don't know when he's going to give me the blessing. You know, I I might witness to somebody and they might slam the door in my face, but I might witness to somebody and they might trust Christ as their Savior. I don't know. It's not my job to know. My job is just to serve. My job is just to be obedient. My job is to be persistent in the work of the gospel. See, knowing that Jesus opens and closes is critically important to staying motivated on our mission of witnessing. Staying motivated to keep on going when we don't always see the results we want to see is only going to happen when we remember that Jesus opens and Jesus closes. You say, why would Jesus ever want to close the door? He's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Remember, Paul said that some water, some sow, but God giveth the increase, right? Some plant, some water, God gives the increase. And I don't know why 
God would maybe choose for me to be the planter instead of the reaper. I don't know why God might choose to use me to be the waterer instead of the reaper. I might witness to the same person dozens of times, and they never trust Christ. And some random evangelist comes through the area and talks to the individual, and they trust the Lord as their Savior. And you scratch your head and say, I said the exact same things 15 times. Why didn't they trust him? I don't know why, but that's how God works. And so we're just to be persistent. Just be persistent in the work of the gospel. Can I say also, as we're persistent to the work of the gospel, let's be true to the name of Jesus. Verse number 8 again, it says this, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Historically, the church of Philadelphia, as we already said, because it was in a small city, it means it would have ultimately been a small church. It wasn't a large one. Uh, it kept with, it, it was, in, of course, in keeping with the stunted growth of the city. But even though it was small, it was strong and it was faithful. Perhaps it was the threat of death or maybe the uncertainty of disaster that would create a good environment for which the church and the members could go around the area and tell people about their need of Christ. I mean, think about it. If you lived in an area that in a couple hours an earthquake could hit and your whole house could fall in on you and you die, when somebody comes along and says, if you were to die today, do you know 100% sure that heaven's your home? It's probably a little more imperative that you consider that question when you just about lost your life yesterday to an earthquake. You see what I'm saying? Perhaps that was it. I don't know. But they were seeing great results because Jesus said he's opened a door for them. He's opened a door for them to be able to see these results and the blessings work in their life. See, um, in, in that way, the church in this city, it becomes the model church, if you may, for evangelism. They worked in ways that the church of Sardis did not, serving people and always sharing the good news of Jesus Christ at the same time. But equally important, Philadelphia was careful to take note of where Jesus wasn't working as well. Verse number 8 says these words, Thou hast a little strength. You know what they recognized? They recognized that apart from Jesus, they were nothing at all. Apart from His name, and apart from His power, apart from His work in their life, none of this would be possible. These other churches, they might have had greater wealth than this church had. These other churches that we've seen already, they might have had more people in it so that they had more hands on deck to be able to accomplish more maybe. But even though these churches might have been lacking in those areas, they knew that whatever strength they had ultimately came from the Lord. And so they stayed faithful to His name. As a result of their faithfulness to Jesus and to the mission of the church, they, were, they are one of only two churches out of these seven to receive no condemnation. All the rest of them have a condemnation that the Lord gives them. This church, along with Smyrna, was a church that pleased Jesus. Smyrna remained faithful unto death in the face of persecution, while Philadelphia remained true to the mission of witnessing. Seems that Jesus sure is concerned with how believers uh, live their lives as a witness to His name, doesn't it? 
Seems as as we consider these things and the, the commendations and the condemnations that he gives to these churches, he's concerned with how we promote his name and how we live, in, live out his name. Another interesting fact about both churches that have, a, have no condemnation from Christ in these seven letters is that both of these churches were churches that were persecuted. See, they were both attacked by the synagogue of Satan. The Bible tells us that the church of Smyrna, they were where the synagogue of Satan was. Notice what it says here in verse number 9 again about this church of Philadelphia. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which they they are Jews and are not, but do lie. He says, listen, I know the area you live in. I know the persecution you're going through. It's no coincidence that the two churches in this list with the strongest witness were also the two that were noted as being persecuted. Because anytime you take a strong stand for Jesus, there's always going to be naysayers. Anytime you stand up for the truth of Jesus Christ, there are going to be those who would want to come against you. So tonight, as we consider this church and we see that Christ commends them because they were faithful to the gospel, we said, let's be persistent in the work of the gospel. Let's be true to the name of Jesus. But let me also say this tonight, as we look at verse number nine, let's be energized by the prospect that we have for evangelism and missions work. Look at verse number nine with me. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Let me ask you a question. Who is, who is more prone to getting saved? Those who are already saved or those who are lost? Of course, those who are lost. They were in a city that was overwhelmed with unbelievers. They had a great mission field before them. Some would say, man, it'd be tough to have a church in that type of an area, have a church in a place where everybody was an unbeliever. Like it's better to have a church where everybody else is a believer. You might have a lot of people come to the church, but there's just as many problems because they're all people regardless. They're all sinners. But the goal and the mission, the objective of the church is to see people saved. And if everyone in our area is already saved, then how are we going to see somebody else saved? See, they had a great mission field before them. It's statistically proven that 49% of our population is unchurched. We could probably say there's probably more than that because everyone doesn't interact with those type of polls and things as well. We have a great mission field before us, not only here, but around the world as well, my, folk, my friends. And listen, we ought to be energized by the prospect for evangelism and missions. And let me say also that this church, and we too can be encouraged by the hope of vindication. Look at verse number nine, how Jesus says he's going to, he's going to, he's going to protect the church. He's going to back the church. He said, I will make them, which are the synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews, but they're not, they're liars. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before thy feet. And to know what? To know that I have loved thee. See, he says those persecuting the church will come down, come and bow down before them and know that Jesus loved them. He says, I'm going to vindicate you. And every, every bit of persecution, every bit of wrongdoing, every time that somebody slammed a door in your face, every one time somebody said a mean word against you, I'm going to bring that to a justifiable ends. Now, if we weren't to go any further, if we were just to stop right there and consider how Jesus might vindicate his church, our minds might be prone first and foremost to think of how he would bring out vengeance. We might go to that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. 
the ark's there and all the people are around it and one of them touches it right or whatever, opens it up. And here comes the Spirit of God, and He melts all the faces of the people and everything. That might be how we think that God is going to work, but that's not at all how God's going to work here, He says. Notice what He says. He said, I'm going to make those who are persecuting you to come and bow down before your feet and to know that I have loved thee. The result will be those that those who once persecuted Christians for what they professed will come to an understanding that God loves them. It'll be like a whole Apostle Paul situation. Paul persecuted the church. Paul went about trying to snuff out and to stamp out Christianity. And in the end, he turned to Christ. And the validation and the vindication that God says is going to come is not going to be he's going to come down in a swift wrath and wipe everyone out and melt their faces off. But he says because of a consistent and a pure witness in the face of persecution, those that persecuted the church will come to a saving knowledge of the love of Jesus. See, we got a twisted, messed up view a lot of times, don't we? We want for those who had wronged the church to be punished for the things they've done. But Jesus wants them to be forgiven for the things they've done. We need to have the heart of Jesus and realize how He would work in that situation. Let me close with this. I know we're late in the hour. But notice, thirdly, out of verses 10 through 13, not only have we seen how Christ was characterized by His awesome power that Christ commends because they were faithful to the gospel, but notice thirdly that Christ comforts them with His never-failing promises. Verse number, 10, verse, uh, verse number 10 says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the, all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I will come quickly, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man uh, take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon his him the name of my God and the name of my city, uh, name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. See, as a result of this church's faithfulness, the Lord promised to preserve the church from what He says as an as a time of tempting or a time an hour of uh, temptation. Now, I believe that is speaking specifically in the plain sense of the Scripture, in the plain uh, historical context. It would be that the fact that this church was spared by, from the persecution that would have come to the other cities in Asia Minor during the reign of Domitian, when a great persecution was coming upon the church that possibly because of the, the small frame of this church, it was like, we're not going to worry about them. They're a nobody. And so they didn't experience as the, uh, the same persecution as some others would. But let me say this, that Jesus will protect his own according to his plans. See, in, in historical context, I believe that's what it's speaking of. But also notice that verse number 10 tells us that Jesus speaks of this hour of temptation impacting all that dwell on the earth. And that's, we know that in that time frame, in that, that, that span of, of years, that there was not a worldwide tempting. There was not a worldwide persecution, if you may. And so this is one of the clearest references that we have in all of these letters to alert us to its prophetic nature as well. 
It's this, it's this statement in chapter or in verse number 10 that helps us to understand that, yes, these things took place then, and they have an aspect of how they affect us now, but it's an overarching hist- uh, futuristic prophetic sense as well. And the Bible does describe a time where the whole world, all humanity, will find a time of testing. That still is yet to come. But he says to the church, because of the fact that they were his, that he's going to keep them from that hour and that time. Aren't you glad that we are not going to have to experience that time? Jesus will protect his own according to his plans. Jesus is coming soon, so stay strong, church. He's coming soon, so stay strong. Verse number 11 says this, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. He's reminding them that they are rewarded at the end of the race. So don't stop running until the end. He's reminding them that that crown, we talked about that already represents rewards and such. So we've got rewards that God is going going to give if we stay faithful to the end. So don't miss out on that, he's what he's saying. Paul tells us that we'll receive the prize at the end of the race. John tells us that in 2 John 1, 8, look to yourselves that we, uh, that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but uh, that we receive a full reward. So we know Jesus is encouraging the believers of Philadelphia to keep it up so that they might find that full reward. And Jesus honors them, it says in verses 12 and 13, by giving them a home and his name. As we've seen in each letter already as well, the inevitable encouragement, the inevitable promise that the believer has an eternal future in Christ, that no matter what might fall amongst the churches, although this church had no, uh, no uh, wrongs that Jesus was condemning, while the other ones did, we find in each and every of the other letters as well, that no matter what was happening as a whole to the church or to the city, that the believers were steadfast in Christ, that their salvation was secure and sure. He says they'll enter the temple of God in the kingdom and they'll never go out anymore. Now that's important. Notice, read it with me in verse number, um, number uh, 12. Him that overcometh, again, the word overcometh, we should take that always as just meaning the saved, right? And so him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go Go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down from heaven, from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Listen, listen, it's important to understand what he's saying. No, remember what I said about the city. The city was prone to what? Earthquakes. When an earthquake comes and it shakes the, the foundation, it shakes the structures, what happens? The pillars fall. They crush and they crumble because of the foundations crumbling, because of the pillars falling, because of the, of the, of the uh, scare of, of earthquakes. The people of the city of Philadelphia were running for their lives. They were fleeing the city, many, many of them not to ever return again. But Jesus says to those who are saved, the overcomers, I'm going to make you a pillar in my city. I'm going to make you stand strong. You're not going to collapse. You're not going to fall. And he says in verse number 12, he shall go no more out. He says, you don't have to worry about fleeing from this city. You're not going to have to worry about having to find a new abode, a new home. Because once you're here, it's for eternity. 
and you are safe, and you are secure because you're mine. And, 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 and what an encouragement that would be for this church and an encouragement for us today. So quickly, as we close, what about the prophetic sense of this, of this, uh, of this church? Where does it line up as it re- relates to our uh, timeline of church history? Well, we understand that it begins after the Reformation church, as we discussed that of uh, Sardis last week, of course. For about a hundred years after the Reformation, there was virtually no missions work within the church. We said that they, ran, they kind of just jumped to the other side of the ditch because of the works of the Catholic Church and all those things that were taking place. And so many of those in the reform, of the Reformers, they just did away with all works. It was all about going back to the, the, uh, the truth of the Scriptures and such. And while they held on to some, some man-made philosophies as well, unfortunately, they, they went back to a, 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 a striving for a proper understanding of Scripture at the at the cost of getting rid of any works at all as well. At that time, each European nation would adopt a certain Protestant or Catholic denomination as their state religion as well. And in those countries, no other Christian groups were permitted. And if any tried to form, they were severely persecuted. So everyone born in that area was automatically baptized and considered to be a Christian in that area. All Germans were Lutheran in those days, all English were Anglican, all Scottish people were Presbyterians, and etc. Any attempt to establish an alternative Christian group would be persecuted. And so, in the, uh, but we talked about last week about that peace of Westphalia. That ended with the 30-year war between the Protestants and the Catholics. And in the decades after the peace treaty, the church experienced a remarkable rebirth a worldwide missions movement, if you may. Countless small splinter groups of churches formed throughout Europe, breaking away from the established state denominations. These new spirit-led churches uh, experienced severe persecution at the beginning. What Catholics did in persecuting reformers, now the reformers began to do in these newly formed Christian groups. And uh, what the Reformed churches did in displacing Catholicism, though this, these missionary churches, this movement did to the Reformation churches. Soon, groups like Pilgrims, Anabaptists, and others fled persecution into a new world. The new world met a whole big open group of opportunity to reach people who needed Christ. Men like Jonathan Edwards would begin the Great Awakening on the North American continent. Other missionaries would reach into Central and South America, into Australia, into Asia. And the span of about 300 years uh, during that time, the church spread faster than any other time in history outside of the first century. Interestingly enough, the first Jewish evangelistic movements were initiated at that time as well. In keeping with the promise that Jesus made that even those who persecuted, who said they were Jews and were not, that they would bow before them. Obviously, Jesus opened the doors for these evangelists, and though they were weak in the fact that they were not part of an established, state-recognized church, and so they didn't have the backing of funds, they weren't as big as these other ones as well, although they were weak, nevertheless, they succeeded greatly as well. At a time, for a time, Philadelphia reestablished the true outward witnessing church that Jesus intended for the world. It had a great impact by holding to what was holy and to what was true. 
And as a blessing, the Lord says that He will spare it from the hour of testing coming to the entire world. In prophetic terms, this means it would not be the final church age. There must be one more to end that age then. So the hard question, though, is this. When does that church age start? When does that take place? When does the church of Philadelphia end? And when does the church of Laodicea begin? Well, in order to better understand that, we've got to study the final part of this chapter, which we will do next week. And so we'll conclude our studies through the the letters to the churches next week as we look at that as well. So let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this evening. Thank you for your goodness and all that you do for us. Lord, we thank you for your word that enlightens us and encourages us to stay faithful and to serve you. Lord, I ask now that you bless our time together as we bring our uh, petitions before you and help us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a prayer request that has not yet been turned in, hold it up high and Brother Matt